Okay, good morning everyone. We're going to begin. want to thank our sponsors this morning. Parsha class is co-sponsored by Gladys Sherman in honor of the Hebrew birthday of her Hebrew birthday. Very happy birthday. Yom Hulet Sameach. And the Schreier family in commemoration of the yurtzeit of their beloved parents and grandparents, Bernard and Maxine Sullivan, and in memory of their beloved uncle, Lester Friedman. Also, our learning is for a refuah shlema of Naomi Bazissel, who's undergoing surgery right now, should have a complete, speedy, and painless refuah shlema. Amen. As always, we'll do an overview of the parsha, and then we'll delve into our psukim. We are, of course, reading Parsha's Vayechi, concluding the opening book of Chumash of our Torah, concluding the first storyline of Torah, which is the formation of the first Jewish family. We've mentioned numerous times, Sefer Bereshis is the story of a family coming together, a family going from dysfunctional, hopefully, to functional, of learning to cooperate, of learning to get along, of learning to be one cohesive unit. Sefer Bereshis has been up and downs of the family unit. We've had challenges intergenerationally, We've had sibling rivalry, according to some commentaries. We've even had friction within marriage. We've seen it all within the family. In Parshas Vayechi, at the end, when the curtain closes on Sefer Bereshis, we are to have learned what it means to function as a family. And we'll see today that in many ways we did. We have the reference at the end of, Ash- of Yaakov bestowing the blessings to his children. The Torah counts and says, these were the twelve Shvatim. Though they seem 12 separate, disparate individuals, they were one unit. They were one family. Yaakov died and his bed was whole in the sense that his family was together. In other ways, the story, the curtain goes down and our challenges still continue. The famous Rabbeinu Bachya and our Parsha, who tells us that Yosef never fully forgave his brothers. That when the brothers come and they say after Yaakov dies, please, we forgot to tell you. Dad wanted us to tell you that when he dies, you still shouldn't hurt us. Don't do anything. That was devastating for Yosef to hear. But clearly there's something that precipitated the brothers to be afraid, to worry, to feel they had to tell Yosef that, even though they fabricated it, obviously, But what led to, what precipitated the discomfort, they knew Yosef, though he verbally, though he articulated forgiveness, and he said, nah, God orchestrated me to be down here. It's not your fault. We're all good. They understood, they perceived, we're not all good. Rabbeinu Bachya says that's accurate. And what's Rabbeinu Bachya's evidence that Yosef never fully forgave his brothers, that the brothers never were fully held accountable? What's Rabbeinu Bachi's evidence? Very compelling evidence. The story of the Asara Haruge Malchus. Tishabov, we read Akina. Yom Kippur, we read in the Slichos of Musaf. The story of the ten martyrs murdered by the Romans. Not contemporaneous to one another, but lumped together. The Medr Sheikha tells us these great rabbis were held accountable. They were given capital punishment because at the end of the trial, for Yosef's brothers, we had a phenomenal trial this past Shabbos. It worked out really wonderfully. At the end of our trial, Baruch Hashem, was educational, was entertaining. Nobody was held accountable with capital punishment. But they, the Romans were pursuing, perusing through Chumash and said, One second, we read this story. 
And the curtain goes down. The brothers were never held accountable. And they failed the trial. And the ten rabbis are in their place. Of course, there's a question. There were only nine brothers who participated in the sale of Yosef. Who was the tenth brother? Why are there Asara Haruge Malchus? Who was the tenth? There were only nine. Binyamin was too young. Binyamin didn't participate. There were not. So who? So who was the tenth? Some of Farshim say, you know, the tenth was none other than Yosef. It takes two to tango. Yosef is the tenth brother of the Asura Asara Haruge Malchus because his behavior aggravated his brothers, incited his brothers. He contributed to the divisiveness, to the atmosphere and the climate of enmity that resulted in his sale. So that he too is corresponded with the tenth brother, the Asara Haruge Malchus. But says Rabbeinu Bachya, clearly the presence of the Asara Haruge Malchus means that they never fully reconciled. So on the one hand, St. Fabricius closes where a dysfunctional family has become functional. We have the first Jewish family. We became a nuclear family before anything else. And on the one hand, we're whole. The Shvatim, the Shivteka, the holy tribes are a unit. Yaakov's bed is complete, so to say. The healing took place on the other hand, at least according to Rabbeinu Bachya, there is a holdover and it carries forward through Shmos and Vayikra and Bamidbar and Dvarim, through Navi, through Ksuvim, and until this very day. That rift, the fact that there was not a true complete healing, continues until this very day. With the Sinas Chinam, the divisiveness, the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash, and so on and so forth. Where's the example of the family becoming functional? We see in our parsha, Yaakov gives the brachas. I know I'm going a little bit out of order here. He gives the brachas to his children, but he first gives brachas to his grandchildren. You know what? Let's actually go in order. Let's do our overview, and I'll tell you this insight when we get there. So, Vayichi Yaakov Beretz Mitzrayim Shana. Yaakov lives in Egypt 17 years, and the number 17 is significant. Baselavichik points out in his Chumash. It's not coincidental. Says the Rav, Parshas Vayeshev and Parshas Vayechi begin with the number 17. 17 years of age, Yosef tended to the flock with his brothers. It's not a coincidence. Yaakov's teachings were responsible for Yosef's tenacity and persistence in times of distress as well as success. Yaakov knew that the longer a leader exercises authority, the tougher, more proud and less sensitive he becomes. There was still danger that after Yaakov's death, Yosef might imitate other rulers in their way of life. Yaakov therefore reviewed the teachings he had passed on to Yosef during his first 17 years. He recognized the need to fortify Yosef, the middle-aged viceroy of Egypt, who wielded absolute power against all temptations associated with the exercise of that power. This took Yaakov 17 years of continuous teaching, the same number of years originally required to fashion Yosef's young personality and imbue it with the morality and piety of Avram and Yitzchak. So the Rav says, the parallel of the 17 in Vayeshev, that Yosef was 17 years old when he was sent to check on his brothers, that began the story. Parallel, the match, the mirror, is that our Parsha begins that Yaakov lived in Egypt 17 years. And suggests the Rav, what's the parallel, the meaning? That just as Yosef spent the first 17 years of his life learning with his father, 
sensitivity, leadership, values, ethics, morality. So too Yosef spent the last 17 years of Yaakov's life reviewing the very same lessons. Why would Yaakov feel he needed to review the very same lessons? Was Yosef a poor student? No. But Yosef's life had been interrupted. He was no longer sitting at his father's feet in the insular protective ghetto of the Jewish culture, environment, atmosphere. Yosef had risen to the viceroy of Egypt to a degree Khalila hadn't assimilated his values, but it assimilated culturally into the Egyptian culture. And so Yaakov had to review the, year, the lessons of Yosef's early years at the end of his life to ensure that Yosef was unchanged and that Yosef would not become changed even after Yaakov passed away. Others disagree. You know, when, when in our parsha, Yaakov anticipates his illness, his infirmity of age, he anticipates, he's towards the end. And he, of course, makes Yosef promise him, if I found favor in your eyes, swear to me, do a chesed and emes with me. Don't bury me in Egypt. I want to eternally rest with my forefathers. Bring me up and bury me there. And Yosef makes that promise. Vayikral of noli Yosef. Yaakov had to call to his son Yosef. And many of them of worship say, why did Yaakov have to call to his son Yosef? And why does he have to send a message? Read the very next thing. It's told to Yosef, your father is sick. What do you mean it's told to Yosef, your father? Do you not visit your father? You can't see his decline? You don't notice he's deteriorating? Yosef has to be called? Sadly, sometimes... We have to make a phone call. We have people in our community whose children visit regularly, call regularly, are involved regularly, set up incredible support for their parents. And then we have children we have to call and say, it's been a while since you're down here, you've made touch with your parent. They've deteriorated. We have to tell them, like Yosef was told, is Yosef that type of neglectful child that he has to be told? So Mephoshim tell us, Yosef stayed away. Why did he stay away? This is the opposite of the Rav's interpretation. The Rav's interpretation was the 17 years and 17 years that they restored that sense of closeness, of learning, of Rebbe, Talmud, father, son relationship to transmit those values. That was the Rav. But others say, no, Yosef stayed away. And why did Yosef intentionally, at great personal pain, why did Yosef avoid his father? Because he was worried if he became too close, too connected, too intimate with his father, what might he let slip? What might he say that he desperately wanted to restrain himself, to protect the honor, to protect the fate of his brothers? He didn't want to tell his father what had happened. And at great personal pain, great personal expense and cost, he avoided his father so as not to let slip what had happened. So Yosef had to be summoned. You know, your father is sick, it's time to come. Yosef comes with his two sons, Menashe and Ephraim. Yaakov says, it's the end of my life. And Yaakov gives a little review of his life. He mentions everything that had happened until he came to Egypt. I had many sons, but you added two more. 
your two sons born in Egypt, your two sons are not considered two generations removed from me. They're mine. Your sons are on such a level, though they were not born in my, under my watch, they are as if my immediate progeny. Liam, Ephraim and Menashe, Keruvain v'Shimon Yehuli. My grandchildren are on the level of Shvatim. Now it's troublesome. What is Yaakov doing here? What is he showing to Ephraim and Menashe? Favoritism. To Ruvain and Shimon and Levi and Yisachar and Zvulun and Naphtali and Dan and God and Asher. Do they not all have children? Do Yaakov's other grandchildren not see? Here we go again. Next generation, we're doing it all over again. Yosef was the favorite of the brothers that led to all the problems. And now Yosef's children are the favorite of all the grandchildren. Liam. They don't have the status of grandchildren. They are my children. And so on. To the point that, halachically, literally, Menashe and Ephraim have the status of Shvatim. At the end of our parsha, the Pesukim we're going to study, Yaakov says, I have 12 tribes. I have 12 sons. The first one point out there that there are 12 sons. The number 12 is significant. How you arrive at that number changes in Tanakh. Sometimes Levi is counted among the 12, in which case the other one counted is Yosef. Sometimes Levi is not counted, because in many ways Levi has different halachas. Levi is not given a portion in the land, and so on. Levi collects from the people. They are the religious figures, leaders, teachers, so they're supported by the community, the original community kolo model. So sometimes Levi is not counted among the Shvatim. So how do you arrive at 12? Because you count, instead of Yosef, you count Ephraim, Ephraim and Manasseh. For example, when it comes to the settling of the land, Ephraim and Manasseh are counted. There is no portion of Yosef. We have Ephraim and Manasseh. We have Reuven, God, and Chatzi. Manasseh. Manasseh split. Half of Manasseh is east of the Yardane. Half of Manasseh is west of the Yardane. Manasseh, that tribe is, is split. So Yaakov literally elevates Ephraim and Menashe to have the status of Shvatim. And then Yaakov says, As for me, when I was coming from Padan, my favorite sentence, Mesa alai Rachel. Be'eretz kenan baderech ba'od kivras eretz lava'afrasa. Yaakov talks about his beloved Rachel like it's an old jalopy car. I was coming from Padan. Would you believe she died on me? Mesa alai Rachel. She petered out. She up and went and died on me. Mesa Alai Rachel. It's a fascinating formulation. We've discussed it. We've learned about this in the past. Mesa Alai. What do you mean? Mesa Rachel. She died. She died on you? Is Rachel's entire life revolve around you? The only significance of her death is that you now don't have her? Mesa Alai Rachel? What about Yosef and Minyamin? What about. Anyway, it's a fascinating pasuk. We've discussed it in the past. So Yaakov sees the sons of Yosef. Who are these boys? What's that question? Who are these boys? Rashi explains that Yaakov wanted to give them a bracha 
But he lost the Shekhinah at that moment because he saw that Ephraim and Manasseh were each the progenitors of wicked descendants. So God withdrew the Shekhinah. Yaakov didn't recognize him and he said, Who are these? Others suggest that Ephraim and Manasseh, who were raised in Egypt, who walked like an Egyptian, looked alien to Yaakov. Who are they? He wasn't entirely familiar with their sincere inside. He looked at their external and said, Mi'ela. Of course, a question that must have been devastating for Yosef. Yosef's whole life is filled with disappointments, zingers, devastations. His father, who he was absent from for 22 years, he's finally reunited. And his father looks at his sons and says, Mi, who are these? Who are these people? Mi'ela. That must have been devastating. So Yosef says, what do you mean? These are my children. God gave me. And Yaakov said, let me give him a bracha. And Yaakov then proceeds to give the bracha to Ephraim and Menashe. We all know the story. We're not studying it today. We've done it in the past. It's available on Yu Torah. But Yaakov reverses the hands. He puts Ephraim under his right hand. I'm sorry, Yosef. Vaikach Yosef as Ephraim b'mino. Mismol Yisrael. Yosef takes Ephraim, the younger son, on his right to the left of Yaakov, and Menashe on his left, which is to the right of Yaakov. We always give precedence, preference to the right over the left. So he put the older son on his father Yaakov's right side. What does Yaakov do? He crosses his hands. So his right hand is on the son on the left, the younger son Ephraim. So he essentially overturns Yosef's placement of the sons. And Yosef corrects him, to which Yaakov responds, I know, I know my son, but the younger one is going to surpass the older. And then we're told, we bless our children, Prediction, promise, your children will be blessed like Ephraim and Menashe, Vayasam as Ephraim, Lefne Menashe. And now the order is reversed in that promise that our children will be blessed that way. Ephraim comes before Menashe. How do you think Menashe felt? How do you think Menashe felt? And what's the connection? Yosef corrects his father. Yaakov says, trust me, I know what I'm doing. And then we're told, we're not going to bless our children to be like Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, to be like Moshe, David, Shlomo, to be like Rabbi Akiva, to be like... We're going to bless them like Ephraim and Menashe, relatively unfamiliar, their personality, their character, their accomplishments, their achievements. Why? Why do we bless our children specifically to be like them? I think it has a lot to do with this episode. What do we see happen? Yaakov favors Ephraim over Menashe. And what does Menashe do? How does he react? Nothing. He's okay with it. He accepts that his brother has strengths that he doesn't have. He respects, he admires, he loves. There's a camaraderie. There's a sense of brotherly Unity. Is there a better and greater hope for a parent towards a child, towards children, than that they get along, that they see the strengths in one another, 
that they're not threatened and they're not jealous and they're not envious and they're not competing, but they're able to appreciate and recognize and admire one another's strengths and live together cohesively in unity. This hadn't happened till now. Yitzchak and Yishmol are adversaries. Yaakov and Esav are adversaries. Yosef and his brothers are adversaries. The first generation of brothers who are not adversaries but are brothers, Ephraim and Menashe. And though Yaakov challenges that brotherhood by elevating Ephraim over Menashe, how does Menashe respond? Gornished. No problem. He loves his brother. And that's the bracha we give our children. And that's maybe the flow of the psukim. Why the Bechay Yivarech Yisrael? Because once we see that finally the dysfunctional family-sibling rivalry has become functional, sibling rivalry has turned to sibling love. Oh, that's the generation. Bechay Yivarech Yisrael. That's the bracha that we give. It's one of the most special times of the week that we take for granted, maybe neglect too much. Giving a bracha to our children every Friday night when they're physically present, or my father's minag, my father's here, in absentia. He gives a bracha to every one of his children and grandchildren every Friday night, those who he's present with and those who are not there. It's an incredible opportunity. What other people pause at the set time every time during the week, think about their children, wish good things for their children, appreciate the gift of their children, Give a bracha to their children. We're so eager, we're hungry, we want to quick start the meal, finish the meal, get on with the meal, quick, get your bracha, come on, I want to make kiddush. It's a cherished moment. It's a cherished opportunity in order to share. It's an amazing outreach opportunity. My dear friend Warren Struhl actually has a website, blessthechildren.com. He thinks we can create a movement of outreach that Jews who are not inspired by many other components of Shabbos or of rigorous observant Jewish life, can be very moved by the practice of Friday night being a family dinner, family night, Friday night being family night, which is launched with the experience of blessing your children. It's a universally appealing idea and practice, and it comes from our parsha. And there's a second reason. Why else Why we, might we be blessing our children through the past millennia to be like Ephraim and Menashe? What did Ephraim and Manasseh successfully achieve that the other brothers were never challenged to? Where were they raised? In Gullus. They raised in Egypt. They didn't have a Jewish day school. They didn't have a vibrant youth program. They didn't have a community call. They didn't have the opportunities the other Shvatim had. And yet, if they could emerge Ephraim and Manasseh, our bracha to our children, and over the last 2,000 years of being dispersed across exile, Bechay Yivarich Yisrael, our bracha is that they too, like Ephraim and Menashe. What's the whole story with the switching of the hands? We've got to move on because I want to get to our psukim. Salonim Rebbe has a fascinating insight. He says, if you look at their names, you see the notion. We may have spoken about this last year, two years ago, I don't remember. Menashe is named such, why? Nashani Elokim. God should cause me to forget all of my negative experience. Ephraim, ki Ephraim Yelokim, is the positive. God has allowed me, caused me, supported my success. 
Says the Slonim Rebbe, Menashe is Sur Meira, Ephraim is Asetov. Menashe is serving Hashem with Yira, a sense of awe, a sense of fear, recoiling, constricting oneself. Sur Meira, avoiding any negative influence, avoiding any negative impact. Ephraim, Kefrani, is Asetov. Is not just living in fear or awe, not just avoiding bad things or getting in trouble, but it's love, Ava, serving Hashem with Ava. There's a fundamental debate happening in this exchange, says the Slanim Rebbe, between Yaakov and Yosef. Yosef says, Menashe over Ephraim, Yira over Ava, Sur Meira over Asetov. He says, Dad, you don't understand it here in Egypt. It's really dangerous. The influences are so strong, so potent, so easy to assimilate, to lose one's way, that the values we live by are of Menashe. He supersedes Ephraim. We are Sur Meira. We're just avoiding assimilation. We are Midas Ayira. We live with awe and tremble and fear. And Yaakov turns to him and he says, No, even here in Gullus, even here in Mitzrayim, you cannot raise children out of fear and awe, out of Yira and Surmeira. You have to show them the Ava, especially in Gullus, where you have alternatives and options, especially in exile, where it's easy and attractive and inviting to assimilate and to integrate. You can't just live with Yira and retreat and Surmeira. You have to instill Ava a love of our values, a passion, an enthusiasm, a vibrancy. It's a beautiful Slonim Rebbe. He says, that's the Machlokas. Yaakov and Yosef is the attribute of Menasha, Kinashani, Surmeira, Yira. Is that primary? Is that the key strategy to survive in exile? Or should one place the emphasis on Kiefrani, Aseitov, Midasa'ava, that's what's going on. Yaakov then calls, assemble his children so that he can give brachas. Actually, he assembles them at first so that he can tell them, I want to tell him what's going to happen at the end of days. He wanted to reveal Ketzayamim. He wanted to reveal Yemosa Mashiach, the transition, exile to redemption. And of course, God disallowed it. But he begins, Ruvain, my oldest son, Ruvain, my firstborn, my strength and my vigor, first in rank. Let me tell you, Ruvain, you know what your bracha is? You are an impulsive, impetuous person who lacks self-control. And therefore, though you are the firstborn chronologically, you are denied the status of firstborn. That's my bracha to you, my son. Such a bracha, who needs? That's a bracha. Shimon and Levi. Weaponry is a stolen craft. You came in conspiracy. I don't want any part of it. Kurdisa, Arura Pam. Cursed is your rage, your anger. Vavartam ki kashasa. I have to separate you two. It's like the teacher with the student. Do I have to separate you two? Shimon and Levi in combination, 
You have anger problems. I've got to separate the two of you and spread you out, disperse you among your brothers. That's my bracha to you. Shkoyach, such a bracha who needs. <coughs> Yehuda. Ata yoducha achecha, shtachavulacha b'nei amecha. They will bow to you. Gur Arya Yehuda. Yehuda, you will be the leader. You are going to have the monarchy and the kingship will descend from you. Why is Yehuda chosen of all the brothers? It's a beautiful Tosefta and Brachos. We spoke about it in the past. We're not going to get into it. Tosefta considers three options, rejects all three, and quotes a fourth. What did Yehuda display? What quality, what character trait? Not any of the ones you're thinking that made Yehuda the choice to be the progenitor of the monarchy. But then we continue. Zvulun Yechof Yamin Yishkon. Zvulun, you're going to live at the seashore. Vuhul Yechof Aniyos V'yarkaso Al-Tzidon. You'll be at the ship's harbor. Yisachar Chamor Garem. Yisachar, you're a strong-boned donkey. Rovetz Ben HaMishpasayim. Rest between the boundaries. Vayar Menucha Kitov Esaretz Ki Naima. Vayit Shechmo, and so on and so forth. We arrive at Yisachar and Zvulun. The tribes of Yisachar and Zvulun. Who was given the bracha first? Yisachar or Zvulun? What's the chronology of their birth? So Zvulun, he says, you're going to settle by the seashore, the ship's harbor. Then he blesses, Yaakov blesses Zvulun. They'll be successful merchants. You're going to make a lot of money. You'll be in the shmata business. And you're going to do well. And then he tells Yisachar, you're a strong-boned donkey. Although the bracha to Yisachar suggests agricultural pursuits, Rashi says no. What's the bracha to Yisachar? Sovel ol Torah kechamor chazak shematinin osom masa Like a donkey that carries a heavy load, Yisachar will carry the not burden chas v'shalom. Yisachar will carry the heavy load of Torah learning. When others don't have time, when others are preoccupied, Yisachar will be dedicated to the study of Torah. Yisachar will carry Torah. The connection Zvul and Yisachar next to each other, the Medrash says, teaches us an unbelievable rule. The Medrash, the Gemara both say that Yisachar and Zvulun enter a partnership. And Rashi here tells us that Zvulun is given the bracha before Yisachar, out of order. Why? They have a partnership. What's the nature of the partnership? Yaakov blesses Zvulun, you're going to be rolling in the dough, you're going to make a lot of money. Yisachar, you're going to be rolling in the svarim, you're going to learn a lot of Torah. What's the interconnection between the two? Zvulun, you're going to use your money to support Yisachar's learning. And the Medrash tells us that we have a model of a contractual relationship, of a partnership, where when Zvulun dedicates his resources to support Yisachar's learning, Yisachar's learning, the reward for that learning, is divided, shared between both Yisachar and Zvulun. Is this just a cute medrash? Is it just a cute Gemara? No. The tour in Yeridea, Resh Mem Vav, quotes the Yisachar-Zvulun arrangement 
Halacha And the Torah writes the following quote, One who cannot learn because he does not at all know how to do so, or because of a lack of time, should support others to learn, it'll be considered as if he himself had learned. The Machaber, Rabbi Yosef Karo, quotes the tour Halacha Lamaisa. He leaves out the last line, it'll be considered as if you yourself has learned. But the Ramah does quote the last line. And the Ramah says that if you support someone else's learning, it's as if you yourself have learned. The Shach, in his commentary on Yeridea, says that the wages of Torah and what the other person profits will be divided equally between the two of them. And Rav Moshe and Igris Moshe, Yeridea, Chelik Dalad, says this is a halacha and contracts exist that detail a Yisachar Zvulun relationship. Now this is very different, Rav Moshe points out in that tshuva. This is Yisachar Zvulun relationship is very different than giving tzedakah. So knock on the door for this kolo, I'll knock on the door for that yeshiva, knock on the door for the base medrash program at BRS, and knock on the door, we want you to sponsor a scholar in residence, and knock on the door to sponsor the parasha club. That's tzaka. You're miser, you're tzaka, and so on. Yisachar Zvulun relationship, says Rav Moshe, is not tzaka. It neither comes from your tzaka money, nor must the recipient conduct themselves as if they've received tzaka. It's not tzaka. It is a business arrangement. It is a contract. As if I come to you and say, I'd like to invest in a business with you. I'll put in the money, you put in the sweat equity, we divide the profits 50-50. And we draw up a contract. And it's legally binding. Have I given you tzedakah? No. Do you have to act as if you received tzedakah? No. It's a business relationship. Says Rav Moshe, Yisachar Zvulun is exactly that. And we have contracts that are extant that exactly reflect that relationship. The Chazanish was the beneficiary of the Yisachar Zvulun relationship. Rav Shach, topic of tonight's great rivalries class. I'm teaching tonight 7.30. The rivalry between Rav Shach and the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Lubavitcher Rebbe had no greater adversary than Rav Shach. Usually in the great rivalries class you can't show a video of the rival's talking about one another. We've got a video of Rav Shach talking about the Lubavitcher Rebbe. What were they arguing about? What was so fundamental to their debate, to the rivalry? Talk about it tonight at 7.30, and then my shameless plug. But Rav Shach was a recipient of Yisachar Zvulun relationship as well. There's a whole question why the Rambam omits in Mishneh Torah, in his halacha, the Rambam omits the Yisachar Zvulun partnership. It's particularly puzzling why the Rambam omits it. Anyone know the history of the Rambam? The Rambam was the beneficiary of Yisachar Zvulun relationship. The Rambam had a brother of David. And early in the Rambam's life, we think of him as the great man of Torah Omada, the great doctor who was also a scholar. But before he was a practicing physician, the Rambam sat and learned, and he was supported by his brother. Why did the arrangement end? Because his brother of David died in the Indian Sea, in the Indian Ocean. He died tragically. When the Rambam, in a letter, writes about the death of his brother, he of course bemoans the great tzaddik, the righteous individual, his incredible brother. But with the ships sinking, went, he said, my brother's fortune, which included my money in the contract. The Rambam himself benefited from a Yisachar Zvulun relationship. 
So it's puzzling that he omits the halacha. And Rav Moshe deals with that, others deal with it. It's not for now. It's a fascinating article in the journal Chakira by Rav Asher ben Sion Buchman. The Rambam and Zvulun Boz Yavuzulo. He has a whole article on that subject. The history of Yisachar Zvulun, relationships and contracts. It's a very interesting, not for now. What I want to share with you is, why is Zvulun listed first? We call it a Yisachar Zvulun partnership. Because Yisachar is the one learning Torah. So, the Sforno and others observe that Yaakov is following the chronology of the age of the brothers in all the brachas he's giving, with one exception. Sforno writes here in our Psukim, though he's following the chronological age, Ruvain, Shimon, Levi, and so on, he gets to Yisachar and Zvulun, and he first gives the bracha to whom? Zvulun! Lechof yamim yishkon. And only then, Yisachar chamor garim. Why does he reverse the order? And moreover, why does he reverse the order when I would think that Yisachar is the one who's learning Torah? Who gets more covered? The Talmud Chacham? Or the businessman supporting the Talmud Chacham? Oh! Very good. What? So the Svarno says, essentially, Nice that you're willing to sit and learn all day. But if I don't support you to sit and learn, what will your wife and children eat? Who will pay the mortgage on your home? So says the Sforno, between Yisachar and Zvulun, Zvulun is more vital because of Enkemachin Torah. Zvulun is the enabler. He empowers Zvulun, perpetuating the learning of Torah. But I want to share with you a different interpretation. And then we've got to get the psukim that we're going to look at. Maybe the whole class will be an overview today. Oi. I want to share with you an interpretation of the Rebbe Zatzal, with all due respect to Rav Shach. <laughs> you know, Rav Shach, when the Rebbe had a stroke and was very sick, I'll give you a little preview for tonight, one of Rav Shach's Talmidim found him saying Tehillim for the Rebbe. He asked his Rebbe, Rav Shach, you're on record, you've said things about the Rebbe. Rav Shach called the Rebbe a madman in New York driving the world crazy. That was the kindest thing that he said about the Lubavitcher Rebbe. So he said to Rav Shach, How could, why are you saying Tehillim for the Rebbe? So Rav Shach said, I love the Rebbe. I want the Rebbe to have a Rafu Shlema. I've never been against the Rebbe. I'm against the Rebbe's heretical beliefs. And I daven that he abandoned those beliefs, but I hope he has a complete Rafu Shlema. It's instructive about the rivalry. At that level, the rivalry is not personal. It's not ad hominem. They were debating... Ideas. They debated it in ways that might make us uncomfortable, but it's a fascinating debate. So the Babacher has the following insight. Between Zvulun and Yisachar. He says, is Zvulun exempt from Talmud Torah? Zvulun works hard. He's got the whole shipping industry here. He's on the, on the beach, on the seashore. He's running the whole shipping industry. He's working hard. He's supporting Yisachar's full-time kolo. Is he exempt from Talmud Torah? It's got to be Kovea Itam the Torah. The fact that you support a Yisachar complements your learning. It can never supplant or replace your obligation to learn. So Zvulun is both earning a living and learning. Yisachar is exclusively learning. But said the Rebbe, Lubavitcher Rebbe, 
When Zvulun takes a portion of what he earns from all the time he's working, and he dedicates it towards Yisachar's learning, he has transformed all the time that he's working into a religious experience. Until now, all of Zvulun's income and profit, his wages, his compensation, only helped him drive a nicer car, live in a bigger house, eat better food, wear fancier clothing. It was all a material experience and exercise. But by supporting Yisachar with the profit of his work, the work is transformed from a mundane, unholy, material exercise into a religious experience. So Yisachar is making a contribution where? To the spiritual world, to the world of Ruchnius. Said the Rebbe Zvulun is doing something even greater. He is taking the world of Gashmias and he's turning it into Ruchnius. It's even greater. So Yisachar, we need a Yisachar. As Rashi says, we need someone who will carry the torch of Torah who will preserve the accuracy, the authenticity, the transmission of Torah. We need a Yisachar. But who comes first, who is greater? Said the Rebbe Zvulun. Because Yisachar is only contributing and shaping the spiritual world, the world of Ruchnius. But by Zvulun working all day, and then taking some of that reward to support Torah, he's impacting the world of Ruchnius, and he's also shaping the physical world, transforming it into a religious experience. So who comes first? Zvulun comes before Yisachar. And then he points to something fantastic. The beginning of the book of Bamidbar, get ahead of ourselves. Torah describes the tribes all lived under separate emblems and flags. One of the big lessons of the transition of Bereshus to Shmos is that though we've merged to one family, We've been able to maintain individualized identities, but functioning as part of one family. Right? The culmination of Bracious is not that they blend into one. The sons are still the sons. They each have their own identity, and that's what Yaakov has given them a bracha, their individualized identity. So in the beginning of Bamidbar, they each have a logo, they have an emblem, they have a flag. You go to Bar Mitzvahs today, every 13 year old boy is a franchise. He's got his own. His initials are no longer his initials. He's got a logo. It's all over the yarmulke, the invitation. You know, okay, you know, you might go LeBron James, Tiger Woods. I understand you got a logo. You're 13 years old. Don't we want to give them something to aspire to? They're already a brand. They're already a franchise. So every tribe had their own flag emblazoned with its own logo. Zvulun's flag is white. Yisachar's flag is black. Why? Listen to what the Rebbe said. He said, The black of Yisachar's flag corresponds with the ink of Torah. The Torah message, the Torah ideas, the Torah values, the Divrei Torah. It's the ink of Torah. The white of Zvulun's flag corresponds with the? The cloth, the parchment. You could have all the Torah ideas in the world. You could have barrels and barrels of ink. But if you don't have a parchment to write it down, to capture it, to perpetuate it. It's lost. Yisachar is the ink, Zvulun is the parchment. Zvulun comes before Yisachar. Zvulun takes the physical hide of the animal, 
the physical skin, the lowly animal. And Zvulun transforms the hide, the skin of the animal, and turns it into cloth that can hold the ink of Yisachar. Zvulun goes to work, engages in the world, earns a livelihood, and transforms the world into a cloth that can hold the Divrei Torah, the ink of Yisachar. It's a beautiful relationship, this Yisachar-Zvulun relationship. It's not about stucco. It's not a charity case. It's an investment. It's a partnership. It's a contract. We have the rest of the brachas, Dan, God, Asher, Naftali, Yosef. Yosef we studied last year. You could listen online. Ben Poras, Yosef, Ben Poras, Ale Ayin. The bracha of Yosef is fantastic. It has to do with Ayin Hara. To avoid Ayin Hara, what it means to avoid Ayin Hara, and so on. And that's where we got up to last year. That brings us up to Shishi, Perak Memtes, Pasuk Chav Zayin, chapter 49, verse 27. That's what we're up to. That's where we're going to begin today. Binyamin, the last bracha. Binyamin Ze'ev Yitraf, Baboker Yochal Ad, Vila'erev Yechalek Shalal. Binyamin is a predatory wolf. In the morning, he devours his prey, and in the evening, he distributes his spoils. What is this bracha to Binyamin? Rashi fills us in. Says Rashi, The role of Binyamin in the story of the civil war of Pilegesh Begiva. So what is the predatory nature of this Binyamin? Binyamin was predatory and aggressive in the civil war that had to do with Pilegesh Begiva, in the book of Shoftim, the very end of Shoftim. And Shaul is a Benjamite. Shaul, the first king of Israel, descends from Binyamin. And Shaul, though he has kind of a sad ending, Shaul at first is a assertive king who shows great leadership, who protects the Jewish people, who defeats three nations and armies that try to destroy us. It's talking about Shaul. What's the imagery of the morning and the evening? The morning is the beginning of the Jewish people's monarchy. Shaul is the first king, and in the, in the morning, in the boker of our existence, he conquered competing armies and defended the Jewish people. In the nighttime, right, continuing the imagery, what's the nighttime? When the sun set on the Jewish people. When Nebuchadnezzar exiled us into Babylonia. Yechalek Shalal. Who are the spoils of Binyamin? Who are the other offspring progeny of Binyamin? Mordechai Esther. Yachloku Shalal Haman. They divided the spoils of Haman. Shenemar Hinebes Haman Asati Esther. So Rashi in the bracha to Binyamin sees allusions to Shaul, a descendant of Binyamin, who reigns in our boker in the beginning of our nationhood, and La'erev, in a dark period, in exile, who are the spoils? 
Mordechai and Esther who descend from Binyamin, who take the spoils of Haman and divide them. Okay, running out of time. I'm just looking at which Mepharshim. Rav Hirsch has a comment here. Says Rav Hirsch, It would be rather sad if here at his youngest son, with Ikumi concludes, he could find nothing better to say than to picture him as a ravening wolf. But it does not say, Ze'ev Arev, Ze'ev Toref, but Ze'ev Yitraf, the Ze'ev, the Ze'ev can very well be the object. If here at the end Yaakov thinks of a wolf, it is indeed the last glance that he gives over his flock. For 20 long years of his life, he had had to fear the real wolf for his real sheep. And now he sees his children, has blessed them, has recognized and described them in their differences and in the importance of each one of them in the whole course of time. And his last glance into the future had just rested on the end of time, on the victory over the last world force, the Malchus Revis. He sees the Gullus and the power of the Gullus against which his descendants will have to fight. And he proclaims, it will be the smallest of them, the youngest of them, who will be the one that will drive the wolf from the flock of Yaakov. So Rav Hirsch reinterprets the Pasuk. Yaakov is not predicting or prophesizing that Binyamin will be like the predatory wolf, but rather Binyamin will be the protector from the predatory wolf. Yaakov has spent his life worrying. His flock, his sheep, his children, the wolves around him that are predators for them. And Yaakov now when he glances in Acharis Hayamim, when he sees the end of days, he prophesizes and anticipates who will be the one to finally defeat the wolf. It will be the youngest. It will be Binyamin. Already at early morning, the beginning of the national history, who will have administered a serious wounding, but at the eve of time, who will completely destroy him. It is in a tradition that the arch enemy Amalek will not be overcome by Yehuda but by the weakest might of the son of Rachel. The youngest of the flock, the Tzirei Hatzon, will drag them along as prey. Ad from Adad, a piece torn off. So the first turns this Pasuk on head and sees in this the prediction that it's the youngest child, seemingly the weakest. It's us. It's our generation. The youngest, the furthest along, in some ways the weakest compared to our ancestors who will be finally the ones to defeat Amalek Ba'achris Yamim in the end of days. Pasuk Chavches Kol Eila Shivta Yisrael Shneimasar All of these tribes of Israel are twelve V'zosa she diber l'amavim v'yavarach hasam Isha sheke birchaso b'irach hasam So Yaakov says, come gather, I want to tell you about the end of days. And then he predicts each one's strengths, their weaknesses, what they need to work on. And only now afterwards does he say, these are my children, the twelve tribes. These are the brachas. Each one according to their blessing, I blessed them. Which is it? According to their blessing, or I bless them. So Rashi says, Each one is individualized. There's an unbelievable lesson for parents in here. The lesson for parents is, 
<coughs> the, bless, the best, <coughs> excuse me, the greatest blessing we could give our children is not to see them all the same. Is not to hold them to the same standard and expectations, not to squeeze them into the same box, not to raise them with the same rules, but to see the individuality within each of our children. Raise each child according to their way, and then no one ever quotes the end of the Pasuk in Mishlei. When they get older, they won't abandon you. If you try to make them all the same, uniform, if you make them conform to one another, to what you want from them, they're going to, when they get the chance, when they graduate your home, when they're out of there, they're going to abandon what you want. But if you individualize your relationship, your attention, your expectations, the education, then they'll stay true. Then you have the best shot at staying true. So Yaakov does not lump one brach on 12 sons. You should have Yerash Shemayim, you should be tzaddikim, you should have kavan and yitfilah, you should have gezunt and nachas and briyas. He doesn't give one bracha. Bracha v'atzlacha. Hey kinder, bracha v'atzlacha. No, Yaakov looks into the soul. He peers into the essence of each child. Is there a greater bracha than your parent knowing what makes you tick? Is there a greater bracha than your parent loving you enough to know what you're made up of, who you are, what you dream? And I'll go so far as to say, is there a greater bracha than your parent willing to call you out for your shortcomings? Willing, caring enough about you to say, you have so many strengths, but if you don't repair the impetuousness, if you don't conquer the rage, if you don't overcome that, a bracha is not only telling your kids, you know, this is so relevant to our time, the helicopter parenting generation, the participation trophy generation, you know all of the, because you all did it right and we're all doing it wrong. We know, we hear about it all the time from you. But there's truth to it. I don't know if you did it right, but we're doing it wrong. <laughs> but this generation where every a participation trophy, everyone gets the equal award, everyone gets the good grade because we don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. We're not helping. Yaakov loves his children so much that he tells them, no award, no trophy for you. You've got to conquer this issue first. So Rashi says, Ish asher kebir chaso. The greatest bracha was... Ish asher kabir chaso. It wasn't bracha v'atzlacha. And it wasn't everyone's perfect, you're great, I love you all unconditionally. It was, I love you all unconditionally, but some of you have work to do. And I love you so much, I'm not going to hold myself back from telling you. Beirach osam. So what does it mean he blessed all of them? Says Rashi. Beirach osam means that even though he gave the individualized bracha based on the personality of each one, he also wished those diverse brachas on all of them together. That's the way Rashi understands. Rav Hirsch understands differently. Rav Hirsch understands what it means is that he blessed them all individually and not that Ruvain's bracha should also fall on Yehuda and Dan's bracha should also fall on Asher. Asher birach osam means that only when each of them realize and fulfill their bracha will it be a collective bracha for everyone together as a unit? Listen to what the Rav writes. Each of Yaakov's sons had disparate capabilities with unique and often clashing character traits. 
The Ramban indicates they all fused together to form Knesset Yisrael, which emerged through combining 12 contradictory traits into one coherent unit. When Yaakov bestowed the earlier blessings to his children, each blessing was like an individual ingredient in a recipe. The final blessing was given to all the tribes to assimilate all the ingredients into the recipe. When the ingredients combine, Knesset Yisrael emerges. So that's the bracha. Each recipe, you need the right amount of pepper, the right amount of salt, the right amount of whatever other ingredients you put into recipes. You need the right amount of each thing, but you also need it to combine to make a delicious dish. And that's the Asher Beirach Osam. Boy, did we have a lot more to talk about here. We're going to stop here, but I'll call your attention to the other things we're going to talk about because they're very fascinating. You know, it says here that Yaakov was collected, gathered to his people. What it does not say about Yaakov that it says about Avram and Yitzchak is, it does not say Yaakov died. To which we have a tradition, the Gemara says in Tainus, Yaakov Avinu Lomes. Yaakov, our forefather, did not die. There's someone else who we have a tradition did not die. I'll give you a hint. Look at the Haftorah. The Haftorah we read for Parshas Vayechi is the story of David HaMelech on his deathbed. There are many, many parallels between David HaMelech and Yaakov Avinu. Both anticipated their demise, called their sons to give them a bracha. Both were surpassed by a son in their lifetime, Yaakov by Yosef and David by Shlomo. Each suffered the rebelliousness of another of their sons. They have many, many similarities. Yaakov is buried in Hebron. Where is David's first capital in? Hebron. There are a lot of similarities between the two. But one of them is Yaakov Avinu Lomes, Yaakov never died, and David Melech Yisrael Chai Vikayam, and David didn't die. I leave you with the following question. Why is Yaakov described as Lomes that he didn't die, and David is described as still here? If both of them, what it's trying to tell us is they're still here, or that they didn't die, why not formulate it the same way? Lomes or Chai Vikayam? What's the difference between Yaakov and the message and David HaMelech and the message? That's question one. Other thing to call your attention to at the end of the Parsha, the very end of the Parsha, Yosef begs his brothers, don't leave me in Mitzrayim. I need you to carry me up. And in fact, they fulfill that promise when they leave Egypt. The Rav Chumash has a beautiful interpretation and you'll hear it next year, Parsha Zvayichi. Isn't it amazing what happened to Yosef's dreams that his brothers would bow to him? Isn't it interesting the way the story ends? Who needs whom? At the very end of the whole story, who's the one asking the other to swear, I need you. Don't let me down. Promise me you'll be there for me. Isn't it fascinating? With that we end. Great rivalries tonight. Tomorrow night is the second installment of the series we're doing on the best version of yourself. Culling from works like Seven Habits of Highly Effective People Mixed with Torah Ideas. And tomorrow, Social Action Committee, please participate in the effort to contact the countries in the UN, the conference in Paris. Have a great day.